It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To end the discourse which have kept the Duchess Mazarin perturbed for so many years, and which have made her ruin her family while she is rushed down the road to perdition, I see no alternative but that of placing her under my lawful power. Pride caused the rupture between us. Licence has sustained it. And intrigue has strengthened it. Christian humility must make her return to me, unconditionally, so that her good conduct, coupled with mine, will make her realise the sweetness of a good marriage, which is her proper vocation. Armand Charles de la Meilleraie, writing to the exiled Mary of Modena. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 5.10, Hortense Mancini, Queen of the Amazons. Last time, quite a while ago, Hortense Mancini was summoned by her uncle, the Chief Minister of France, to join him at the court of King Louis XIV. Shortly before dying, her uncle married her off to an abusive, religious zealot of her husband, who made her life a living hell. After exhausting her legal options, she fled the country to join her sister Marie in Italy. Unfortunately, Marie's husband also turned out to be a wrongen, meaning that she had to run away back to France. Being a top-quality sister, Hortense went with Marie, but after narrowly escaping one of her husband's agents, elected instead to head for Savoy, whose duke was a former suitor of hers. When we left the action, the duke had died with his widow making it clear that Hortense was no longer welcome in Savoy. Today, we see Hortense join the ranks of royal mistresses by heading to England, and the welcoming embrace of another one of her former suitors. But before we get to that, I'd like to thank all of my amazing patrons on Patreon who keep the show going and have continued to do so during my long time away. If you too would like to support the podcast, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. 
You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, where we post all kinds of bonus content, including maps and pictures. And given how often Hortense sat for portraits, we are spoiled for choice this week. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. did Hortense Mancini decide to go to England when she was asked to leave Savoy? Well, first there was a thriving community of French expats with whom she could find friends. Charles's mother, Henrietta Maria, had been a French princess, after all. She also had a cousin in the English court, Mary of Modena, who had recently married King Charles's brother and current heir, James, Duke of York and was well acquainted with the English ambassador to France, Lord Montague, who would be sure to cultivate her as a useful contact. But perhaps most importantly, it was far, far away from her husband. While she remained on the continent, she would always be at risk. The English Channel had repelled invaders for centuries. It should hopefully keep Armand Charles' men away from her. It would not be an easy trip to get her from Savoy to London. The most direct route, of course, would be through France, but that would be far too dangerous. So she instead took a rather circuitous route via Geneva and then through various German states before making it to Netherlands and the port of Brill, which she reached in December 1675. Despite the care she was taking to avoid her husband's men, she was not secretive about her journey. She called on several friends along the way, and the English rumour mill was full of excitement and speculation about the scandalous Mazaranette that was about to reach its shores. A winter crossing of the channel was not for the faint-hearted, but she was not perturbed. And so, on New Year's Eve, a rather muddy, wet Hortense arrived, dressed in men's clothes, in London. Despite the rather inauspicious manner of her entry into the city, she was immediately hailed as a queen of the Amazons, a rather different reputation from the one she had back in France. It certainly ruffled a few feathers, none more so than that of the French ambassador to London, Henri de Rouvigny. He was far from happy to see her. He knew her reputation and was sure that her sights were set on seducing the famously womanising King Charles II. He was on good terms with Charles's current favourite mistress, Louise de Keroual, the Duchess of Portsmouth. She was always willing to pass over information to the ambassador and whisper things into the king's ear that France wanted him to hear. Hortense, who was not his creature, but instead was listening to other voices, had the potential to spoil this rather nice little arrangement, and therefore had to be stopped. But the only way to get her out of England and back to France was to get King Louis to agree to full restitution of her wealth and property, as well as protection from her husband. 
And Louis was no more willing to do that now than he had been for the past decade or so. So the ambassador could only watch on in horror as Hortense worked her magic on King Charles. It wasn't exactly hard. Charles was known as the Merry Monarch, the Pleasure King. Hortense was beautiful, charming, and enticing. It was a match made in heaven, and it seems that she became his mistress not long after their first meeting. She was moved into apartments in the Palace of Whitehall that had been previously occupied by Barbara Villiers, another paramour of the king, and quickly overtook the Duchess of Portsmouth to become Charles's principal mistress. It was quite the whirlwind romance and conducted without much care for secrecy. Charles provided her with a substantial pension as well of £4,000. And this wasn't the only relationship she was cultivating. Not content with sleeping with the king, she also managed to seduce his daughter, which is, you know, a bold move. The 14-year-old Anne Leonard was Charles's illegitimate daughter with Barbara Villiers and had recently been married off to the Earl of Sussex. He was a country boy, quite a few years her senior, who much preferred watching cricket to entertaining his young urbane wife, who spent all of her time in London. The results were somewhat predictable. The young countess became infatuated, bowled over, you might say, with a sophisticated and enticing Duchess Mazarin, and the two became lovers. This was not quite the scandal that you might imagine. Passionate relationships with female acquaintances were not uncommon at the time, and in the libertine court of Charles II, many things were tolerated that might have otherwise been repressed. Indeed, they didn't hide their relationship, being frequently seen in St. James's Park at all hours together. Alongside their sexual relationship, Hortense took Anne under her wing, teaching her about how to hunt and fence. Indeed, they were once seen sparring in the park in their nightgowns. Imagine if there had been 18th century paparazzi with long lenses to capture that image. Unfortunately, though, for Anne Leonard, her husband was not too keen on this arrangement, and so summoned her back to his country estate. Anne refused, determined to stay with Hortense, and had to be forcibly removed to a French convent, a fate not dissimilar to the one that Hortense had suffered many years before. History doesn't record what Hortense thought about this, but I doubt she would have enjoyed seeing yet another woman she loved and cared for being taken from her by a jealous husband. Although she had apartments near the king, she principally lived in a house next to St James's Park, and her salon became the talk of the town. While common in France, the salon was a relative newcomer to English society, and Hortense created a highly unorthodox one. It was a place of complete openness and freedom. Visitors could come and go as they pleased, stay for as long as they wanted, and do whatever they wished. While in France the salon was a predominantly female affair, while the academy was where men went to socialise, both sexes mixed in Hortense's salon. Everyone from artists and actors to political figures and foreign royalty passed through the salon. A frequent visitor was the new French ambassador, who reported back to Paris, quote, We always stay there until midnight. The house is very pleasant and living there is very comfortable. I occupy a large chair by the fireside with one of the books that I take from the library. Madame Mazarin's temperament is as attractive as her appearance. 
but it was women that most flocked to Hortense's salon and most appreciated its air of liberty. For adventurous and curious women, it was Nirvana. The writer, Marie-Catherine Doldenoy, described it as, quote, the meeting place of all that was illustrious and witty in London. I went there often. Everyone recounted news there. There was gambling, good food, and the days passed like moments. Nearly every influential female thinker and writer of the day, from the playwright Susanna Carroll to the early feminist campaigner Mary Astle, either passed through the salon or was inspired by this exotic and liberated French-Italian exile. She had just the level of charm, danger and sex appeal that kept enticing people and drawing them in. The closest relationship she developed in London, though, other than with the king, was with the exiled French writer Charles de Saint-Evremont. He was nearly twice her age and every bit as controversial a figure as she. He was an infamous libertine who had regularly courted scandal, serving time in the Bastille after angering Hortense's uncle, Cardinal Mazarin, before going to London. He had a biting tongue. One of his contemporaries said that, quote, There was no one at court who was spared his mockery, but it was pointed wit that always found its mark. The two were kindred spirits, filled with an inexhaustible zest for life. He described Hortense as having, quote, the air, habit, and equipage of a queen of the Amazons. She appeared equally equipped to charm and to fight. They saw each other almost daily, and he was a valuable friend to her as he had years of experience in navigating court life. In particular, he was keen that she managed to keep King Charles happy, even as she carried on numerous affairs around him. Charles wasn't an exceedingly jealous man, but even he had his limits, and Hortense managed to test these with her turbulent affair with Louis I, the Prince of Monaco. He had only been visiting Charles's court, but became totally infatuated with Hortense. Saint-Evremont urged Hortense to break with Louis, but she had become extremely fond of the lovesick prince, and so ignored her friend. Louis delayed and delayed his departure, and became more and more open with his affections to the point where even Charles decided that he was being mocked, and so withdrew Hortense's pension. This was a perilous situation, as Charles had the power to send her away from England, and potentially leave her with no choice but to return to her husband's clutches. However, Hortense came to her senses, and made a very public show of repentance. One imagines Saint-Evremont would not have been shy in saying, I told you so. London in the late 17th century was not an especially safe place to be Catholic. While the king, whose mother, let's remember, had been a Catholic and was also married to one, was in favour broadly of religious toleration, Parliament was as strongly Protestant as it had ever been. It was also extremely worried about the succession. Charles had no legitimate children, meaning that the throne was due to pass to his brother, James, an openly Catholic man who was also married to one. There were numerous rumoured Catholic plots to assassinate Charles, with the most famous being the so-called Popish Plot. 
Now, I'd love to talk more about this conspiracy because the man behind it, Titus Oates, led a wildlife almost as extraordinary as Hortense. He was a famous idiot and a liar who had gained a notorious reputation for homosexuality while at Cambridge and had twice been fired from jobs as a vicar and naval chaplain for perjury and so-called sexual deviance. He went to the continent where he either converted to Catholicism or pretended to, his motivations are unclear, but after spectacularly failing to make it as a priest, he returned to England and began a new life as a sort of 17th century Alex Jones, or perhaps Joe McCarthy. He teamed up with a fanatically anti-Catholic clergyman called Israel Tung, and penned a lengthy treatise about a deep state Catholic plot to assassinate the king and his brother, and named hundreds of prominent people as plotters. Given his background, it's hard to fathom why anyone would have believed Oates, but in such a febrile time, his accusations were taken very seriously. There were hearings, trials, and mass public hysteria. There were rumours of a second gunpowder plot, and countless lives were ruined through false accusations or lost through lynchings or miscarriages of justice. Indeed, 15 people were tried and executed for being part of this entirely made-up plot. As a prominent Catholic, Hortense was named early on as one of the plotters. And while the king scoffed at the idea, he could not protect everybody accused. Things got so bad that Hortense did consider leaving England and joining her sister, who was by now living in Madrid, but was persuaded to stay by Saint-Evremont. Eventually, Oates was exposed and jailed, but the genie, once less out of the bottle, could not be contained for long. The early 1680s, though, were, in general, a happy time for Hortense. She and Saint-Evremont presided over her salon, which remained a hub of pleasure, conversation and learning. But as 1684 turned to 1685, two events occurred which would have seismic importance. The first related to her latest fling, which was with a Swedish baron called Count Banner. This had aroused the jealousy of her nephew, Philippe de Soissons, the son of her sister Alampe. He had been staying in London and had grown infatuated with his aunt, to the extent that he called out Banner and killed him in a duel. Soissons fled to escape arrest, but the taint of scandal again hung over Hortense. English society quickly forgave her, but it further damaged relations with her family. But worse was to come. On the 5th of February 1685, King Charles invited some friends over for a night of gambling and debauchery that the diarist John Evelyn wrote about with total disgust. Quote, I can never forget the inexpressible luxury, profaneness, gaming, and all dissoluteness, and as it were total forgetfulness of God, it being Sunday evening, which this day I was a witness of. The king, sitting and toying with his concubines, Portsmouth, Cleveland and Mazarin, a French boy singing loved songs in that glorious galley, whilst about twenty of the great courtiers and other dissolute persons were at Basset around a large table. Six days later, the king was dead. While he had lived, Hortense had a steady protector. But now, with him gone, things were much less secure. Her problem was not the new king. 
King James II of England and seventh of Scotland, agreed to keep up her pension, and Hortense was close to his wife, Queen Mary. No, the issue was that the new king's rule was inherently unstable due to his Catholic faith, one of course that Hortense shared, and her closeness to the new regime was therefore dangerous. It was well known that she was a conduit to the king's attention due to her close relationship with the queen and his chief minister, the Earl of Sunderland, and many sought to leverage their relationships with Hortense to get closer to the royal ear. James and Mary were childless, though this was not for want of trying. Indeed, Hortense had often been a rock in Mary's grief as she suffered several miscarriages and the death and infancy of what children were successfully delivered. The English establishment chafed under the rule of their Catholic king. His childlessness was their one consolation, as, when he died, the throne would pass to his Protestant daughter Mary, from his first marriage, who was married to William, the Prince of Orange. But everything changed in 1687, when Mary finally gave birth to a healthy son, Prince James. Just as before, with the Popish plot, rumours swirled of a conspiracy. It was said that the Queen was known to be barren, and the King impotent after a bout of venereal disease. How typical of these godless Catholics. It was not possible that she could have given birth to a son, or that James could have fathered one. How convenient! No, it must be a trick. No matter that thirty people had witnessed the birth, there must have been a cover-up. The child was not Mary's. He must have been brought in by secret, smuggled in a warming pan. Those of you who have been with me since the Queens of England days will remember this story, and I would encourage you to listen to my episodes on Mary of Modena if you want to know more. Suffice it to say that things quickly spiralled out of control, and would eventually lead to William of Orange leading an invasion of England on invitation of English Protestants, leading to the collapse of James's rule and his fleeing into exile. The Glorious Revolution all that time England was conquered by the Dutch. Whichever bit of branding takes your fancy. No matter which way you swing it, though, this was terrible news for Hortense. Both Charles and James, through his wife, had close personal relationships with her that kept her safe and secure. But William and Mary didn't know her. And more to the point, they had come to the throne as part of an anti-Catholic wave backed by some of the most influential people in the land. After having lived through a period of relative security, her world was plunged into uncertainty. This is summed up by the early days of the new regime. One of William and Mary's first actions was to grant permission for Hortense, Charles de Saint-Devremont, and their community of French émigrés to remain in London and guaranteed their safety. But she was also ordered to leave her apartments in the Palace of Whitehall and seek lodgings elsewhere. Parliament went even further, petitioning the king to banish Hortense from the kingdom. Now, I spent quite a bit of time digging through the dusty pages of the Parliament archive. Well, actually no, it was a website, but where's the romance in that? Hoping that there would be some juicy and choice words in there to express why they wanted to expel her from the kingdom. But no, here it is in its entirety. Quote, Resolved, that a humble address be presented to his majesty, by such members of this house as are of His Majesty's Most Honourable Privy Council and Colonel Birch, that the Duchess of Mazarin may be removed out of His Majesty's dominions. 
A few days later, the king passed on his response. Quote, his majesty was pleased to say that he would consider of it and return an answer. That is a holding response, if ever I heard one. Basically, he told them, I'll think about it, and then promptly went on with doing something far more important. Broadly, William seems to have been perfectly content to leave her be. So long as she didn't cause any trouble, she could stay in her house in St. James's Palace and continue to host her salon. And that salon was continuing to thrive. Ever since Louis XIV had revoked the Edict of Nantes, which had guaranteed religious toleration in France, French Protestants, known as the Huguenots, began to flock to England and many of them began appearing in Hortense's salon. She didn't care about their religion. Her salon had always been a melting pot of men and women of all sorts of political, social and religious persuasions. Indeed, she continued to spend money decorating it, with one of her friends describing it in the 1690s as being a, quote, little palace. Even so, there is no doubt that her position was weaker than it had been before. And like a shark in the ocean, her husband smelt blood. So yes, unfortunately, we must bring back to the stage Armand Charles de la Meret. How I have loved not thinking about him these past few months. In a shocking turn of events, England and France were currently at war. And with the new regime in power in London, surely now nothing could prevent him from forcing his wife back into his bed. The exiled King James and his wife Mary had recently been welcomed to the court of Versailles. Amon Charles decided to write to his wife's newly arrived cousin, once again announcing that he would bring her back to France. It is a long, self-righteous letter, infused with the odour of a man with a total lack of self-awareness or empathy. I quoted part of it at the start of this episode, and it is nothing less than a laundry list of his wife's faults, and a dismissal of her grievances against him. He rails against her, quote, insolence, and complains about her constant wish for him to return the money he had taken from her. His excuse, quote, my religion forbids that I should defer to her, because that would be the most fantastic of all cowardice, and both of us would damn ourselves with such soft usage. She in ardently desiring our separation, and I in weakly submitting to her. Indeed, this letter is nothing short of deranged. Remember, he was writing this to try and persuade Mary to back his side against her cousin, but his crazed religious zealotry meant he couldn't help but descend into threats of hellfire and damnation. Quote, God expects her to renounce for good her contrary ways, which are as little capable of saving her as it is possible for me to take heaven by storm. If she continues to deny these truths, then I shall have to go on struggling against her with all my strength. And even if I fail to make her holy in spite of herself, I shall save myself at least by the righteousness of my intents and by my staunch faith. I swear it here, menaces, prayers, rewards, punishments, the loss of fortune or even of life itself will never deter me from being the persecutor of Madame Mazarin. But you must also believe me when I say that if she is willing to return to me, I will be the most gentle, the most humble, the most tender husband that anyone can imagine. It really is the measure of this man that he wrote that, expecting not only to be believed, but that it would entice a woman 
to betray her cousin. Everyone in Versailles knew that he was in the wrong. One French noblewoman wrote to her daughter around this time, quote, It would be difficult to exaggerate how stupid he really is. He is mad. He dresses like a pauper. He keeps repeating that she has to return to him. To him. Good God, saint Evremon is right when he says that she should be excused from the normal rules. One only has to look at Monsieur Mazarin to see why. But while polite society had clearly made its mind up about the Mazarins, the legal system was a different matter. Armand Charles was incredibly litigious, not only against his wife, but on a succession of moral causes. He had enriched the legal profession and had accessed the finest lawyer around, a man called Claude Erard. Divorce was not legal in France, but a couple could obtain a legally authorised separation that would divide their property between them. But how that was done was very much up to the court, and so lawyers on both sides used every trick in the book to sway the judge or magistrate, including engaging the murky world of the gutter press. Claude Erard was a master of this. He wrote up his arguments in a pamphlet and distributed around England and France. In it, he painted Hortense as a fallen woman, whose every action in the years since she had fled her husband had been a disgrace. He unfavourably compared her to the exiled Mary of Modena. Quote, the Queen devoted herself wholly to the care of salvation in eternity, the exercise of our religion. Madame Mazarin gave herself up to the follies of the age, and seemed to have no aim but to ruin herself and others. The Queen made it her business to gather the elect into her palace, and turn it into a house of prayer and edification. Madame Mazarin made her house a public rendezvous for gaming, pleasure and gallantry, a new Babylon, where people of all nations, sects and tongues marched confusedly together under the standard of luxury and fortune. The Queen laboured to relieve the necessitous and knock off the fetters of prisoners. Madame Mazarin to plunder the rich and make them her captives. The Queen descended from her throne to humble herself at the feet of God's altars and to pay him that worship and adoration which are his due. Madame Mazarin idolised herself, sought adorers and exacted a profane criminal worship from them. He attempted to paint Armand Charles as a paragon of patience, forgiveness, and virtue. Quote, How many husbands would have had so much tenderness for a wife that had so far provoked him? How many would have shut their gates against her, and being in the flower of their years, deprived of the sweets of conjugal society by her caprice, would at least have given themselves the liberties and diversions of a single life? at an age when they are at their most agreeable. And he then tried to persuade the court, and those reading the pamphlet, that reason must prevail. Quote, but since she is deaf to the voice of her husband, and since through ill advice she is obstinate in her denial of what is due to him and to herself, he is obliged to give recourse to you, gentlemen, who know her true interest better than herself that your prudence may supply the deficiency of hers, that through the fear of those pains which she has made herself obnoxious to, she may be compelled to accept those advantages which are offered to her. 
and that you may, by law, oblige her to that which would be her sole desire if she knew her own interest. This is one of the first cases of legal separation to arouse such fevered debate in international media and generated a great deal of public interest across Europe. Hortense's legal representatives were no match for this public relations tsunami and the court found in favour of the Duke. Hortense was ordered to return to France, first the care of the nuns at Saint-Marie-de-Chailot and then to her husband. This would be a disaster for her. She wrote to her sister, quote, I would rather die than return to Monsieur Mazarin, and I would have almost as much aversion to spending the rest of my days in a convent. While the French court had no power to compel her to leave England, her situation was still perilous. Her debts were mounting, and now she had no hope of ever extracting the money owed to her by her husband. There was, though, still a great deal of sympathy on both sides of the channel for Hortense, who was seen by many to be the victim of a boorish and crazed man. She pleaded her case to family and friends, writing in one that, quote, I stayed longer than I should have, and as long as I could with her husband, who was so opposed to me. In the end, I left for good reason a man who I had been attached to out of obedience. My just disengagement cost me the wealth that the world heard so much about. But liberty is never too dear for those who deliver themselves from tyranny. And she would cling to that liberty, but the next few years would not be kind to Hortense. Her financial situation continued to get ever more straitened, with her moving house twice in the 1690s, each time downsizing to something more affordable. In each of these homes, she hosted her salon and continued to receive guests and gamble away her meagre allowance. But it wasn't the same. London wasn't as exciting a place for Hortense anymore. The new regime ran a far more austere court than its predecessors, particularly after the death of Queen Mary in 1694. The war with France expanded and deepened in intensity, especially after a failed invasion of Ireland by the exiled King James. Anti-French feeling was intense, meaning that many of the French exiles fell in firmly behind the English cause. Hortense could never do that. Much the frustration of Saint-Affermont, who urged her to be more strategic. He told her, quote, You must do as I do. I always have an unwavering attachment to the present government in which I reside. But that was not how Hortense was wired. In the words of her biographer, Elizabeth Goldsmith, quote, Her feelings were never hard to read. She pursued her pleasures openly, confronted her enemies and held fast to her friends. She could not cheer on English victories in the war when so many family members were fighting on the French side. When her son-in-law was killed at the Battle of Steenkirk, her friends rallied behind her to keep her spirits up. They wrote to her that they were drinking to her health. Quote, we drink to your health thrice. We started with approval. From approval we went to praise, and from praise to admiration. As tenderness and pity are mixed with praise, while drinking we regretted the misfortune of your condition, and I had difficulty stopping all the murmuring against Providence for having made the daughter a widow instead of the mother. I can imagine that last sentence raising a wry smile from Hortense. 
The war ended in an uneasy peace in 1697, but things didn't get easier for her. We don't know much about the next few years, only snippets. She began an affair with the Earl of Albemarle, a nobleman 20 years her junior. A fellow libertine, he was drawn to the infamous Hortense Mancini and would often be found sneaking around to her home once her guests had departed. Around this time, her daughter, Marie Charlotte, came to visit. She had had an extremely turbulent life, having rebelled against her father to marry a man of whom he disapproved. It's not clear why, but Saint-Evremont rather cheekily suggests it's because he had been a, quote, intimate friend of his father, and so he viewed this match as being incestuous. He had locked his daughter away in a convent, only for her to climb the walls and run away to Brussels, of all places, to elope. The marriage, though, was a failure, with the husband following his father-in-law's example of locking his wife up in a convent. Not being afraid to repeat the same trick twice, Marie Charlotte escaped again, and went on to live a travelling life of adventure that eventually drew her to London. As soon as Albemarle saw Marie Charlotte, he instantly ditched the mother to shack up with the daughter. Hortense was distraught and outraged by this betrayal. Perhaps this was a touch of vanity. She wasn't the sort of woman who was abandoned for another. She was the temptress, not the third wheel. She used her influence with the king to have her daughter deported to Holland, but this backfired when Albemarle simply followed his lover across the channel. In her misery, her drinking increased to such a degree that her friends became extremely concerned. She retreated from society, no longer seeing friends, and began to talk of taking a, quote, final retreat, which only increased their worry, prompting Saint-Evremont to write what turned out to be his last letter to her. Quote, The horrible retreat that you speak of would be no more so for you than for me, Your strength makes me believe that you will endure for a little longer. The poor state of your affairs and your good sense should keep your mind from latching on to the hope of imaginary and false relief. However, she refused food and company and drank in ever-increasing quantities. When her death came on the 2nd of July, 1699, Saint-Evremont and her friends were convinced she had, in effect, committed suicide through self-neglect. She was deeply mourned, not least by Saint-Evremont, who wrote in a letter, quote, Madame Mazarin cared little for the injustice that nature did her, for no one ever died with so much resignation and fortitude. I am afflicted every day by her loss. She was finally at peace. Or so you might have thought, but the drama of her personal life would not end with her death because it is time, one last time, to return her husband to the stage. He couldn't possess her in life, but he would do so in death. He sailed to England, but found that his wife had been arrested by her many creditors, who insisted on settlement of her debts. After decades of refusing to send Hortense any money, after court battles, scandal and acrimony, Armand Charles was forced to hand over a great deal of money, which would have greatly amused Hortense, I'm sure. Thus began an absolutely absurd spectacle of Armand Charles taking his wife's coffin on a tour of all of his estates in northern France, 
or the places, if you remember, that she absolutely detested. He now could finally control his wife and do with her what he wished. No matter that she was in a coffin, it's the principle that counts. It's a measure of the man that I am both astonished and entirely unsurprised by his act of petty malice. Finally, after four months on the road, he finally set her to rest. Not in the Mazarin family tomb, oh no. The least he could do was far too much for him. He instead buried her on a small church on one of his estates. It was not until his death that she was finally interred alongside her uncle in the College of Four Nations in Paris, the building that is now the French Institute. Although she met with a sad and pitiable end, there is no doubt that Hortense Mancini lived her life to its fullest. She was notorious, but instead of fearing it, she embraced it, refusing to live a life under the thumb of a man she did not respect. It's been argued that she was one of the first media celebrities, and certainly inspired generations of women who fought against oppressive societal norms. She was the first non-royal French woman to print her own autobiography in her own name. She was one of the first to travel for pleasure, and inspired liberal thinkers to question whether or not it was right for women not to be able to live their lives freely. But, predictably, Saint-Avermont can sum her up better than I ever could. Quote, She was the most beautiful woman in the world, with a beauty which kept its brilliance to the very last moment of her life. She was the greatest heiress in Europe. Misfortune reduced her to poverty. But, magnificent without any wealth to her name, she lived more honourably than the richest knew how to live. She died seriously with a Christian indifference to life. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.